When you trust Christ as your Savior, God declares you righteous, and that is a declaration the Bible teaches as he will come into the fifth chapter that can never, ever be repealed. This is Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the book of Romans, and over the last several sessions, we've been looking at a concept that is foundational to the gospel. The fact that, as Romans 3.23 tells us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As we move into verse 24 today and look at God's way of salvation, we'll be spending several days looking at a variety of terms. Today's word is justification. Would you take the Word of God this morning, please, and turn to the book of Romans as we continue our verse-by-verse study, Romans chapter 3. As you're turning there this morning, I want to ask you a question. When was the last time you were gripped by something? Maybe you were reading a book and you said, I just can't put this book down. I need to keep reading. It gripped you. I've seen a few plays and movies in my life that just brought me in and they gripped me. Recently, my son-in-law encouraged me to watch a documentary on two German mountain climbers who in 1936 chose to climb the north face of the Eiger. It was gripping, absolutely gripping. Maybe you found yourself watching a sports event and you just couldn't leave it. You were on the edge of your seat. When was the last time you were gripped with something? Now, there are certain things that grip us in life, some good, some bad, some spiritual, some unspiritual, but typically the things that grip us in life are the things that end up marking our life. The same is true, certainly, in the spiritual realm. Several months ago, I was in the Ukraine, and normally when I get off the airplane, I just go right to work, and I don't finish until we drive to the airport. But on this particular occasion, I had about three hours of free time. And we went to a memorial I had always wanted to see, but never had time to see it. It was a memorial that was erected in honor of those Ukrainians who died through a forced famine under Joseph Stalin. He demanded their absolute allegiance, and the Ukrainians refused to give it to them. And so he systematically came in, took all their crops, they went into every home, took all the food. If they found food in your home, if they found it buried in your background, backyard, you would be executed. I met one man some time ago, and I asked him, what was that like? He said, well, my grandfather and my father, he was an elderly man. He said they would, in the spring of the year, go and harvest mushrooms and wild berries that they would find in the forest. But when the spring passed, They were desperate, and he said they would sometimes take bark off the trees and leaves, and they would boil it, and they would eat that as a family. Now, Stalin doesn't get as much press as Hitler, but he was responsible for the death of 15 million Ukrainians. Some years ago, after Stalin died, his daughter, uh, Svetlana, she was interested in asking the famous Christian Malcolm Muggeridge a question. She said, I want you to help me to understand why it is that my daddy died the way he did. Now, Stalin, if you've read anything about him, he was not a very impressive man. He was 5'4". He was not very imposing, but he was a man of steel, a man of godless ambitions. And on his deathbed, just before he died, she said, he raised his fists and shook it up into the heavens. 
then leaned back into his pillow and died. And so she wanted to know, and Malcolm Muggeridge said, well, he was a man who hated God and hated the revelation of his word. And when he shook his fist into the heavens, he was communicating that even in his last breath. Here was a man who was gripped by a philosophy, a false philosophy, but nonetheless gripped. There was another man who lived centuries ago, small in stature, unimpressive in speech, the Bible tells us. But he was a man gripped with a different cause. He was a man gripped with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We call him the Apostle Paul. And like Stalin, he had the effect on millions of people who were one to Christ through his own ministry and through those whom he would encourage throughout the centuries to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. And it was this man who said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. And we find ourselves in a paragraph of Scripture that the Spirit of God penned through this man's life that if you really, truly understand it, you will be gripped with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I've not memorized the book of Romans, as Luther encouraged us to do, but I've memorized a number of sections, and this is one paragraph I have memorized, and I want to encourage you to memorize verses 21 through 26 here of Romans 3. Now, this morning, we're going to just focus on half of one verse, verse 24, but to give us a running start into the context, I want to begin reading in verse 21. Follow along, Romans 3 and verse 21. Paul writes, But now, apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, it's been several weeks since we've been in Romans, so let me just take a moment and review the context. If you remember in the introduction found in the first 17 verses, Paul gives us the theme of the epistle, which is the righteousness of God. And so in Romans 1.16, he said, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why not, Paul? Verse 17, For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And so we saw that the phrase, the righteousness of God, is critical to our understanding of this letter. And it's critical of our understanding to carry well the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost world. Most of you have it underlined in this paragraph because it appears four times. In verse 21, he says, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. In verse 22, he speaks of the righteousness of God through faith. Look again in verse 25, he tells us how Christ, with his own shed blood, did this as a demonstration of his, that is the Father's righteousness. And then in verse 26, he says, God did this, why? For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time for anyone who will put their faith in Jesus. And so we saw this phrase, the righteousness of God is very important. And so we tried to ask the question, what precisely does Paul mean by the righteousness of God? 
Is he simply referring to a divine attribute that God in his character is righteous and just? Or is he possibly referring not to a divine attribute, but indeed to a divine activity where God deals justly and righteously with people? That's how Luther initially took the phrase. And when he read the phrase, the righteousness of God, he was terrified by it because he thought that that could only mean that God would justly punish us for our sin. And so he wrote in his journal, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God, because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Is that what Paul had in mind? Is he referring to a divine attribute? Is he referring to a divine uh, action, or uh, uh, a divine activity? Or is he referring to a divine gift? That is where God gives someone who's totally undeserving his righteousness. Well, Luther discovered, and we will too, that he's actually referring to all three. That God in his righteous character as a divine attribute demonstrates his righteousness. That's a divine activity when he gives to us a divine gift, freely unearned his righteousness. Or to say it differently, we said the righteousness of God is God's righteous way of giving unrighteous people a righteous standing in his holy presence. And when Luther understood that, his life was dramatically changed and God used him to spare, spearhead the Protestant uh, Reformation. It was a revolution and it was indeed a reformation. And so he wrote it last. By the mercy of God, meditating night and day until I grasp the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy, he justifies us by faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. Now, I want us this morning, and in the days they had to be gripped with this expression, the righteousness of God. And if you are gripped with it, you will think of God differently. You will think of other people differently. And like Paul, you will not be ashamed of the gospel. You will boldly, earnestly, zealously spend the rest of your life in trying to share it with those who will listen. So we need to think very carefully and we need to think very biblically how it is that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Now, I told you last time that this section of Scripture is really like a well-outlined sermon. There's an introduction, there's three points, and there's a conclusion. And it will take us at least five weeks to get through this section of Scripture. Like the book of Romans, there are three major sections to the whole letter. We're in that section that comprises chapters 1 through 8, what we call the doctrinal section, where the righteousness of God is revealed. When we come to chapters 9 through 11, we will move into the national section where God deals with the people of Israel, where his righteousness will be vindicated and proven. And then when we come to chapters 12, all the way through the end of the epistle, we will come to the third section, the applicational, the practical section where God's righteousness is applied. And just as this paragraph divides into three points, and just as this whole epistle divides into three sections, each of the three sections divides into three sections. And so here in the doctrinal section of Romans, he highlights three major doctrines. First, what we've studied to be the doctrine of condemnation. 
that man by nature is a sinner and worthy of the wrath of God. Then he will address in the paragraph that we were in, all the way through the end of chapter 5, the doctrine of justification. That is God's way of declaring unworthy people righteous in his sight. And then he will deal with the doctrine of sanctification where God not only saves us from the penalty of sin, but he commits himself to making Christ like us. That because he's delivered us from the power of sin, we can now present ourselves to him as a living sacrifice. So we've been dealing with the doctrine of condemnation. In the introduction, he introduces us to the gospel. But before he can give us the good news, he has to share the bad news. And so we saw Paul like a skilled attorney, like a skilled prosecutor. He takes every segment of society and he proves their guilt. He deals with the pagan idolater in chapter 1. In the first half of chapter 2, he deals with the moralist, the good moral person. In the second half of chapter 2 into chapter 3, he deals with the religionist, namely in the Jew. And his thesis is the same with each and every person. Every person has some knowledge of God holding him accountable. Therefore, no one can plead innocence before God because no one can plead in ignorance about God. And so every man has enough revelation from God to hold him guilty and accountable, and therefore under the just wrath of God. But when you come to chapter 3 and verse 21, you turn a corner, and he moves from the doctrine of condemnation to the doctrine of justification, and it's marked with those two little words, but now. Those are favorite words of the Apostle Paul when he wants to draw a powerful contrast. For instance, in Ephesians 2, he describes a very dark picture of what we are by nature and how we are by nature children of wrath. But then he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, in that great resurrection chapter in the New Testament, he paints a very dismal picture of what it would be like if Christ had not been raised from the dead, how we would be condemned in our sin. But then he breaks in with the words, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all who are asleep or dead. Well, likewise, in Romans 1.18 to 3.20, he paints the blackest picture possible of man and sin. He has these storm clouds of guilt and these lightning rods of the wrath of God, and you feel just helpless, but then he breaks in in verse 21 of chapter 3 with the words, but now, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. It has been revealed. It has been made known, depending on your translation. Man's need for salvation has been manifested. And Paul wants to make it very clear that this is not some new doctrine that he invented. It is as old as the Old Testament scriptures, that this doctrine has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Don't ever think for a moment that God in the Old Testament dispensation had one way of saving people, and in this dispensation, he has a different way. No, God has always saved people throughout all of time in the same way. They were looking forward to Messiah. We look back at what Messiah has done. And so Paul makes it very clear that the law and the prophets, what today we call the Old Testament, reveals that a man is saved by grace apart from works. 
Jesus said, I am the way. He didn't say your works, your baptism, your confirmation, your membership, your deeds. I am the way. No one can possibly come to the Father, he taught, but by me. And this truth is witnessed in the Old Testament. We've seen that God's law was never a means to justify us, but a means to reveal us, to show how bad we are and how desperate our need is. And so Paul wants the church at Rome, and by extension, he wants every Christian to understand in a deeper, more profound way the grace of God. You can know enough of God's grace to be saved, but God wants you to grow in grace. And remember, this paragraph of Scripture, like the whole letter, is not written primarily to get lost people saved. It is written to save people that they might grow. And some of us have such a a loose understanding of the grace of God. We've never grown deep into the grace of God, and that's what God wants for us today. So in verse 22, he says, the righteousness of God is through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction. All people are in need of salvation, and he says the righteousness of God does not come on the basis of works, but through faith. And then he says, for there is no distinction. Now, most of us have Romans 3.23 memorized. It's one of the more quoted verses in all the Bible. For all who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it really should be memorized with the preceding clause because they're linked together in the original. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter if you are the pagan idolater of chapter 1, the moralists of chapter 2, the religionists of chapter 3. It doesn't matter if you're educated or uneducated. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or a Gentile, religious or non-religious, African, Asian, uh, Caucasian, black, white, purple. It doesn't matter. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we saw first he unfolded for us a universal verdict. All without exception. It's totally comprehensive. Everyone who's alive, everyone who has lived, and everyone who is yet to be born is a sinner. All without exception have sinned. And we saw that this universal verdict has created an undeniable status that we have sinned. And we noted the tense of the verb in, English, in Greek, and that's important because in Greek, it speaks not just of the time of time, but the kind of time. In Greek, God uses not only past, present, and future, the time of time, but he uses the kind of time. And we saw that this particular Greek verb that is translated have sinned looks not just at acts of sin that you've committed, but something you did way back yonder that he's going to explain in great depth when we come to Romans 5. That in Adam and with Adam, all of us have sinned. It is an established fact. It doesn't matter how far downstream you are from Adam. In Adam, we all sinned, such that the scripture says, in sin was I conceived, in sin was I shaped, the old English says. I was shaped in iniquity because when Adam sinned, I sinned with him. And so we have this status before God where we miss the mark, which is what the verb, the noun, and the adjective mean in Greek. Hamatano, to miss the mark 
of God's righteousness. It was used, as we noted in the first century, of an archer who was aiming at a target and he missed the bullseye. It was used in the first century of someone who had deviated from a known path. And so all of us, without exception, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Have sinned and fall short. And we saw that that also was one particular Greek word, and it describes an impossible chasm that we now face between us and God. The word fall short literally means to be utterly lacking. And again, it's interesting if you look outside of the New Testament to see its usage. It was used a farmer who planted too late, and so he had missed the season. He had failed to get his, his seed in the ground, and so he failed to get his crop. For all of sin, you could say, and missed the season of the glory of God. We saw also it was used in the first century of someone who is bankrupt financially. And so you might render it for all of sin and are bankrupt of the glory of God. And so all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. There's an undeniable status that we all share that creates an impossible chasm in that it only gets worse. It causes us to fall short of God's glory. And we saw the word glory as the word doxa. Remember that? We speak of the doxology, that little short hymn of praise. And the parallel word in the Old Testament is shekinah. The word Shekinah is translated in the Greek Old Testament with the word doxa. And the Shekinah speaks of God's uh, outward majesty, all of his glory, all of his magnificence, and every one of us falls short of that. So it's a horrible state in which man finds himself. Now that's just Paul's introduction. Now he gets into the meat of his sermon. And he's going to make three principal points. We're just going to look at the first one today that describes the source of our justification that is a picture of how to be saved God's way. And there are three important truths about justification that I want us to walk from this place with. Point number one, if you're taking notes, justification is an act of God. It's an act of God. Look again now at verse 24. Being justified as a gift, by his grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now, for starters, I think it's important that we define the word justified. What do we mean by the word justified? What comes to your mind? Now, again, the key expression in the paragraph and in the epistle is the righteousness of God. But now, for the first time, in verb form, Paul uses the same word that is translated justified or justification, and it means to declare righteous. Now, when you come to words like justification and propitiation and reconciliation and demonstration and uh, redemption, what comes to your mind? See, very often when Christians hear words like that, they say, well, those are words for pastors and those are words for uh, theologians, but those are not words that I need to know or that I can understand. Yes, you can understand them. And if you don't know what redemption, reconciliation, propitiation, justification means, you'll never grow up in Jesus Christ. You will stay a baby Christian. These are very important words, and God gives them to us for our spiritual growth. Number one, when you understand words like justification 
and propitiation, redemption and reconciliation. It helps you to understand about who God is because theology reflects what God is like. And when you think about what God is like, you will rightly think about yourself. And some of us have a very distorted view of God because we don't understand these important words that God has given us. In addition, these words are important to keep you on solid ground. You know, the cults very often prey on babes in Christ who have never grown up and matured. Now, a cult cannot take a person out of the kingdom of God. A true believer will never renounce Christ. But I've seen more than one Christian in my lifetime get sidetracked for a period of time and get knocked off kilter. Not to mention there are those ministries that might have the gospel but a lot of garbage with it and they end up investing their life and thinking the wrong way. So these words are very important if we're going to be doctrinally sound and live a steady kind of life. And in third, it will keep you, I promise you, from all kinds of wacky beliefs. So what do you think of when you see, think of justification? How would you define it? Now, very often when you ask a person, what is justification, what do they say? I've heard, I've heard it once, I've heard it 10,000 times, just as if I never sinned. But that, as I hope to show you, is a poor definition. It is a very inaccurate definition. It is less than precise to what the Scripture says. Let me give you a definition, and then we'll walk our way through the text. Justification is that act where God declares righteous the believing sinner, to be righteous while still in their sin. It's on the slide if you want to write it down. Justification is the act whereby God declares righteous the believing sinner to be righteous while still in their sinful fallen state. First of all, it is an act. It is not a process. It happens instantaneously in a moment's time when you trust Jesus as your Lord. Don't confuse justification with sanctification. Sanctification is that process whereby God, after he saves us, shapes us into the image of Christ. And sanctification can change from day to day, but justification is an act that never, ever changes. When you trust Christ as your Savior, God declares you righteous, and that is a declaration the Bible teaches as he will come into the fifth chapter that can never, ever be repealed. There are no degrees of justification. There are not some Christians who are more justified than others. And so in Romans 7, uh, Romans 1 and verse 7, as in many uh, introductions to Paul's letters, he calls all believers without exception saints. Because every true believer has been declared righteous. It speaks of our position. It is an act, and it is an act of God. It is not something we do. It is something that God does. You cannot justify yourself. And third, it is an act of God where God declares you righteous. It does not mean that God makes you righteous, but that God declares you righteous. It's a legal word from the courtroom in the first century. For a copy of today's message from Romans 324, visit our website at searchthescriptures.org and look up program ROM14 entitled God's Way of Salvation. You can also listen to it on our Search the Scriptures app, available through the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. And of course, you can always call us at 877-787-7478 and request a CD or DVD copy. It's not too late to sign up for the Search the Scriptures Tour of Israel, taking place May 11th through the 22nd of 2022. 
The scriptures will literally come alive for you as Dr. Brogy leads a tour through many of the prominent locations found in the Bible. Details are online at stsisraeltour.com and the deadline to register is February 11th. The STS Israel Tour is paid for exclusively by those participating in this trip. Tomorrow we continue our look at God's way of salvation. Join us then as we search the scriptures.